I did want to mention tonight, I will continue uh, my series I've been working on before we, I went to the Philippines, which was um, the Great Hymns of Faith. And tonight we're going to deal with the song, Tell It to Jesus. And so just, it's exciting to kind of study a little bit about the hymn itself and then what they mean. Uh, those old hymns definitely uh, encourage us in our faith and we, we're thankful for them. But um, this, this past week, uh, we had the funeral service for, of course, my friend, our friend, uh, Brother Fred Killam. And, um, you know, I've done many funerals uh, since I've been here. Too many to count. But um, it's a joy to know when a brother or sister passes that we'll see them again. That that's not the end. And I know that for Fred. In fact, talking to Nancy and the family, uh, he was in pretty uncomfortable for him to, at the end there but she said right before he breathed his last breath it's like he stopped and he looked off as if he was looking at someone and said something about oh it's you and then that was it um, you know folks we all we don't have a, you know something strange if a person had a longing for death that person's not quite right um, and it's natural to have a fear of how we're going to die. You know, it'd be nice to be able to die in our sleep, wouldn't it? I mean, that's, that's the way a lot of people like to go. But that's in the Lord's hands. It's a good thing we don't know everything about the future. It would affect the way we live now. But one thing we do know is that God holds the future in his hands, and it's concerning our death. He is also in control of that. If you and I are in the will of God, we have nothing to fear as far as death is concerned. I know there are some concerns how it will happen, but when death comes, we know we'll be face to face with Jesus Christ. We know that all those promises that we have read throughout the years will become a reality. That home that God has prepared for us, it's real. And all oh, to look face to face. In the, in the face of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, what a day that truly will be. But I was thinking about this passage uh, in light of those thoughts in Acts chapter 21. Why was Paul not afraid to die? I mean, Paul, it seemed like he was fearless. It didn't matter what they did. It reminds me of uh, John R. Rice, that uh, testimony I heard of John R. Rice, an old preacher, some of you may not know him, but um, he was walking into a restaurant late one night in the city, and he had another preacher with him, and a guy came out from behind the bushes with a gun and uh, wanted all their wallets, their money. Of course, the other preacher took off, left Brother Rice there by himself, and he was probably uh, close to 80 years old then, if not all, all past. But he looked at that thief, that young man, he said, son, you can't threaten me with heaven. Of course, the, the guy didn't know what to say to that, and he walked off. And, but it's true. No one can just take our life unless God has, uh, uh, is allowing it to happen. Now, by the way, that does not give us a license to go jump off the building or to go run and you know, play on the interstate in uh, front of trucks. No, that's, uh, it's or to handle rattlesnakes, right? Uh, you do that at your own uh, peril. But um, 
but God can keep us safe if we're doing his will, doing the right thing, walking in his ways and uh, trying to live by his word, uh, we can have that kind of confidence. But why? I want to address this thought here, why Paul was not afraid to die. We're going to read verse, starting at verse 8 of Acts 21, in verse 8, and read down through verse 14. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came into Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come down, or coming to us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Lord, or the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of Gentiles. And when we heard these things, we were, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying the will of the Lord be done. Let's join our hearts together in prayer here this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that your will be done here this morning, that you'd help every young person. And I'm thankful for the youth that are in here, but help them to listen and to seek out what it is you have for them today. I also pray that for all of us, that we would not be distracted by all the things in our mind, our schedules, but right now we'd focus in on you. So speak to us. May your will be done, especially for anyone that might be here that's not saved. But we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. But here we find that Paul, he says, I'm ready to die. I'm not only ready to go to prison, but I'm ready to die for the Lord. And so the apostle Paul, he's on his way to Jerusalem. And it wasn't long ago we were studying this passage on Sunday night. But he tarries in Caesarea, and he's in the home of Philip, the evangelist. And he's there for a few days. And while he is there, these are the events that take place, what we're going to look at this morning. In verses 10 through 11, we see a discouraging sign. Here Paul is set on doing God's will. He's going to Jerusalem. This is a stop-off point. He's not staying here. He's heading to Jerusalem. But Agabus, this prophet, comes and he binds himself with Paul's girdle, that belt. And it was an action that was truly full of significance. In other words, everyone there knew what this meant. That Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound. You're going to be mistreated. And so it was a warning of the problems and the difficulties that awaited Paul there at Jerusalem. Then in verse 12, we see a well-meaning people. We all, there are well-meaning people in our lives. Oh, they mean well, but they sometimes are trying to keep us from doing what we know God wants us to do. And so in verse 12, there was a, a united voice against Paul's resolve to go to Jerusalem. And I, as I said, oh, they meant well, but they said, Paul, we don't want you to go. Please don't go. Because we know there's harm waiting for you if you go to Jerusalem. They pleaded with him. They were united in their interest of Paul's health, his care. 
and, and that's good and well, but they uh, were meaning well, but they were not really uh, helping in this situation. And then we see a determined preacher, and I love this. Paul is not swayed by the people that mean well. You know, there has been many a times that a young man or a young lady has been called to the mission field and their own parents have fought it and pleaded with them not to go. In fact, in some cases, they said, you cannot go. And they did everything they could to keep them from doing God's will. They may have meant well. They may have thought, well, I don't want them to uh, uh, be harmed and, and anything to happen to them in that foreign country. But the safest place any of us can ever be is in the will of God. And so Paul was determined, and, and that, their, their argument that he should be imprisoned, well, that didn't impress Paul. He wasn't worried about that. He said, I've been there before, and I'll probably be there again. And he was. But he had, so in any case, he was ready to die if need be. Paul was not ready, or excuse me, he was ready to face death. He was ready to face eternity. But how? With no fear. How was Paul able to do that? And why was he not afraid? Well, number one, the reason that Paul with confidence would say, I'm ready to die because he was covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. He was covered by the blood. And, and, and the thing that makes man afraid is sin. Man's attempts to cover uh, their sin, is, it's not sufficient. You know the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 and where they both uh, sinned against God and uh, they knew they were naked. And what they do? They sewed fig leaves together to try to cover themselves. But it was not sufficient to cover their sin. And when they heard the voice of God, and that was not new for Adam and Eve, often in the cool of the evening, God would call upon them. And they would walk and talk to God. Wouldn't that have been amazing? But now sin had entered their life. And when God called them as at all the other times before, they were afraid of God. Yes, and they hid themselves. You see, sin is what causes us to be afraid. Sin is what causes the guilt in our lives. And so sin brings guilt. And when we have guilt in our life, it brings shame. And shame causes the sinner to want to hide from God. And that's where Adam and Eve were. And I think all of us can understand that because all of us are sinners. Guilt is a fundamental problem of man. Guilt, it, it hounds mankind, the sinner. And it ultimately, we, if we, uh, without a remedy to guilt, we are doomed. We are doomed to behavior that will ultimately destroy us. So how many people are, are, uh, have even had health problems because of the guilt that is just overwhelming them and the shame that they are living under? And there is a remedy for, for that. But guilt dogs the footsteps of all of mankind. There was a teacher who had a little boy come to class, and he was always dirty. And it seemed like it just got worse. I mean, he had, from head to toe, just covered with dirt, and, and he smelled bad. And so the teacher tried to very tactfully talk about personal hygiene, you know, taking a bath and all this, and, but to no avail. He, as I said, it just continued to get worse. 
So finally, one day she said to this boy, she said, if, you, if your home gets really dirty, really, really bad, what do you do? And without hesitating, the boy says, we just move. <laughs> we just move to another place. I have seen that played out before. I've been in some of these homes that they've left them a, a horrible mess. Uh, but that is what so many do with sin. You, you think about it. They move from one shelter to another trying to cover up their sin, trying to hide their sin. And many try to, the, to shelter their guilt by joining a church. Thinking if I join the church, boy, I, I'll be able to deal with that guilt in my life and I'll, I'll be able to handle it much better. That doesn't work. And then they, they may try uh, to, to shelter their guilt with baptism and with self-righteousness. But all of those things will not rid their heart and mind from the guilt that hounds them. So the fig leaves of church membership, as mankind, just as Adam and Eve did, tried to cover themselves. And, and because of the guilt and the shame they had, Mankind today tries to use church membership as the fig leaves. Their religious exercises, we are filled with religion. There, there's a church in the Philippines. It was started in the Philippines. Uh, oh, I, I, it's, it's Spanish, but it's Church of, of Christ is what it is, of Ecclesia or something to that effect. But here's, it's a false, completely false teaching. Olivia? Take that coat down. Okay. Um, but anyway, they teach that, that uh, in fact, it's, it's called the Church of Christ, but they don't even believe in Christ. They believe that he is not or was not God, and it's just interesting. But they also believe, they teach, that you have to be in the church in order, when, when the rapture comes, you have to be actually physically in the building. Now they've extended it. You can at least touch the gate of that building. And so... Uh, their attendance is pretty good. And they have a lot of money and backing. But it's, it's false doctrine. And they, they are clinging to that. And they can have all the religion they want. And there is much religion in every part of the world. We even saw Mormons walking down uh, the streets in the Philippines. I asked Brother Ogie about that. He says, oh, yes. He says they walk and walk. But they very rarely talk to many people. They're just always walking. He says they know who to talk to. They try to uh, get those who are... Uh, you know, confused, but he says they just don't stop hardly. They just walk and walk. And, but they're, you know, how, how in the world are people like that sacrificing their time and all their effort? Well, they think they're going to get to heaven by walking along, trying to be a missionary uh, for that false doctrine. So religion is not the answer. It is not going to cover our sin. It's not going to deal with the guilt that's in our heart and minds. And so it's only... It is only the blood of Jesus Christ. And when Paul, he, he, had, he was already tried religion. He had tried education. He had tried many other things. But none of those things took care of the needs in his life. He was still empty until Jesus Christ came into his life. And it was the blood of Jesus. How could Paul say, I'm ready to die? Because he was under the blood of Jesus Christ. He understood that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. When Paul put his faith in Jesus Christ, all of his sin was taken care of. The guilt was taken care of. The shame was taken care of in 
that relationship with Jesus Christ. As it says in Hebrews 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood is no remission, no forgiveness of sin. And that old song, I love that song, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. We just talked about this song not long ago. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. And the only thing that's going to deal with your sins, if you haven't met Jesus Christ yet, if you haven't invited him into your life, you're, you will never have your sins, your guilt, uh, be uh, or, or, have it, uh, or get rid of it without the blood of Jesus Christ in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 1.7. So why was Paul not afraid to die? Because he was under the blood. You and I don't have to fear death if we have, are under the blood of Jesus Christ. And that, what I mean by that, you've received Christ as your Savior. You're trusting in Jesus Christ and the finished work on the cross of Calvary to get you to heaven. I remember well when I was... 13 years old, that man asking me, Randy, if you died right now, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? Now, I'll be honest with you, then I was scared of death. Scared to death of death. I really was. Because it, for the first time, I acknowledged, I understood that I was a sinner bound for hell. And a, a lost person has every reason to fear death. Because when death takes place for a lost person, all hope is gone. There's not a second chance. The time to receive Christ is today. Well, then I also see that he was convinced he was saved. He was convinced of that. Back, if you would, turn back to Acts chapter 9, where Paul meets the Lord Jesus Christ, and verses 1 through 7, and Saul, this is before he was named Paul, Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, that as any Christians that were believing in Jesus Christ, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth. And heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. Well, here we see that Paul was convinced he was saved. Why? Because of the miracle of his conversion. By the way, it's still a miracle when it takes place today. When you got saved, oh, you might not have saw a bright light from heaven as was in the case of Paul, but it was not the bright light from heaven that saved Paul. It was by faith he was saved through, by the grace of God. For by grace are you saved through faith. That is the miracle that took place. The salvation of Paul on the road to Damascus. And so this, uh, uh, this man, this man who thought he was doing the work for God, 
by capturing Christians, killing Christians, was actually working for his spiritual father, the devil, because he was a lost man. Didn't matter how religious he was. Didn't matter all the deeds he tried to do that were good. None of them helped his situation at all until here when he met Jesus Christ. And so his deadly enmity is seen against God. He was an enemy of God, as were all of us. I think Brother Morris mentioned that in Sunday school class. Uh, so, so many scriptures that, can, that talk about that. But uh, uh, look at verse 1 again of, of back in, um, yes, back in chapter 9 that we were just in. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest. So here's, here he was, not even realizing that he was doing the work of the devil. He was an enemy of God. Romans 8, 7 says the carnal mind is enmity against God. And so if a person has not been born again, they're not a friend of God. They're actually an enemy. They are because their father is the devil. The, the Paul, uh, to, to Paul, during, or I guess I should say Saul at this time, to Saul, Christ was a blasphemer and, and, and Christianity was nothing more than a cult. To him, this religious man. So his deadly enmity against God was clearly seen before he come to know Christ as his Savior. And then we see he had a driving energy. And that all that energy was against Christianity. Uh, look again there, chapter 9, verse 2. And desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, and that they found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. So Saul was determined to stamp out Christianity, to destroy Christianity. He was determined that no one preach in the name of Christ and eliminate uh, these, uh, these pesky Christians. And he was determined to, uh, to wreak vengeance on all believers. So that was Paul uh, before he was saved. That was Saul uh, uh, before he, he uh, met Christ on the Damascus Road. And the miracle of his conversion, and because of the manner of his conversion, he was changed completely. It was not Paul attempting to cover up his guilt and shame anymore. It was coming clean with God. And we see this tremendous revelation. Again, back in Acts chapter 9, we see uh, that uh, Paul now understands that Jesus is alive. When he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to, hard for thee to kick against the pricks. So Paul is made aware, it becomes clear to him that Jesus Christ is alive. I don't think this was a completely new thought. Paul had heard the preaching. Paul heard Stephen. He was there as he was stoned to death. Paul had heard the truth, and I'm sure that, uh, it, as, as the Lord said, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. The, the Holy Spirit bringing convicting, conviction upon his heart before this time. And so the, the light from heaven, the Lord from heaven, this tremendous revelation that Paul now comes face to face with Jesus. 
He's alive, as was uh, talked about and preached about and what he was against. And then we see the tremendous revolution here in verse 6. And the trembling and astonished, he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And so Paul is now changed from a persecutor that we see in verse 1, and he is changed to a preacher. Look down at verse 20 of Acts 9. And straightway he preached Christ. Amen. He preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. This is immediately after he receives his vision. And now straightway he preaches Christ. The, he's doing the very thing that he was trying to stop. That is a tremendous revolution that took place in Paul's life. And so in a moment, he went from being a persecutor to a preacher. And, and uh, the angry bull now became the docile lamb. And so Paul was changed completely. Back at, at, in verse 21 of, of Acts 9, it, it states there, but all that heard him were amazed. And it is not he, this he that destroyed them, which, which called on the name in Jerusalem, on this name, the name Jesus, and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priest. Can you imagine? I, I, I guess it could be uh, someone who today would be like a Muslim who's killing Christians. Some, and, and now he's a preacher of the gospel. And they said, Can, is this not the same man? And they were amazed at what they heard and saw. Oh, the difference that Christ makes in a life. I wonder, there's nothing more, really, more valuable in this world than our name. It's to be, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. But what do people, what, what comes into the minds of an individual when your name is spoken. I'm talking about when we're not there and our name is spoken. What do people think? Boy, that person, I remember they lied. And if they lied back then, I know they'll probably everything they say now is a lie. Or I know that kind of behavior, boy, they are uh, um, wild and loose. Or what, what, what would they think? What, what would they say? Um, I know, I understand there are people who will always say mean things, but you and I have built up a reputation. And so there is something that comes to the minds of people when our name is spoken. Would to God that it would be that that individual is, as Brother Morris was speaking today about the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that that person is displaying peace and love and joy and patience and meekness. Would to God that they would say, I, I may not agree with them, but I'll tell you, they really believe what they say they believe. And uh, they sure live it uh, before everyone. Um, oh, the difference that Christ will make. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 talks about how old things are passed away. The old, all things are become new. Let me ask you, friend, you profess to be saved. Are you changed? Are you different than what you used to be? Do those friends and family members that knew you before you were saved, do they now, like it says there in verse 21, they, were, they heard him and were amazed. And they said, is this not he that destroyed them that preached in the name of Christ? 
You know, family members and friends will say, I, I'm amazed at the change that's taken place. Has there been a change? If not, maybe you need to do some searching of your own heart. A missionary that was um, uh, ministering to a remote tribe in Africa had the opportunity to come to America with some of his uh, converts uh, from this tribe. And so he brings these men who had never been in what we would call civilization. He brings them to America. You can imagine the culture shock. And, and uh, I, it's kind of like some of those Filipinos, especially the young people, said, oh, we love Walmart. Uh, we've never seen anything like it. You can go in there, you can see everything. They just never seen anything like that. Um, I, I had some uh, Slim Jims. I gave them, boy, you think I've given away treasure. They don't have that there. They love those things. But, but they love coming to America and seeing this. But he came, he brought them, and they were uh, in a, uh, uh, the city of New York. They were uh, getting in this large building. There was an elevator there, and these men were just in awe as they watched this elderly lady get in the elevator. And they saw the doors shut and the lights were flashing and suddenly the doors opened and a beautiful young woman walked out. And so that's when they said, boy, we've got to get our wives and bring them back to this machine and uh, put them in this machine and let them ride this machine. Now, while an elevator cannot change a person, that's just a funny little story of how they perceive things, Jesus Christ can completely change. You know, we all... Uh, well, I say we all, but many people in the world, they spend millions of dollars to try to prolong their life. And not all those things are bad, to try to live healthy, eat right, and all that kind of stuff. Some try to uh, use um, facelifts and try to make themselves look younger. But you know, we all ultimately have an appointment with death. And we cannot change our heart. We can, you know, where they always say you cannot change a leopard's spots. Well, you cannot change a sinner's life or soul. Only Jesus can do that. And boy, then the spots are changed. Then the life is new. To me, that is more of a miracle than if you were able to put some older person into a, a machine and they come out young again. Oh, this is even a greater transformation. When you go from a lost, wicked sinner to a born-again Christian, so the sovereignty of Jesus Christ was established in the life of Paul right away when he said in verse 6, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Paul already recognizes who he's talking to, and he says, you are Lord, you are sovereign, and I submit to your authority. And so the sovereignty of Jesus Christ is established there. I would hope and pray that all of us here this morning have that established in our lives that he is lord he is sovereign he has the right to tell us what to do where to go and such and then the sufficiency of jesus christ was established in paul's life where we see in in second corinthians chapter 12 where paul needed no other but jesus christ where he prayed three times that this thorn in the flesh would be removed and where he realized when the Lord told him that his grace was sufficient, Paul acknowledged that fact, that in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, he's all I need. He is my Lord. He is uh, 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 the one I depend upon. I need no other. I love that song, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. 
My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' what? Blood and righteousness, on his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And that's what Paul was doing. Paul was not afraid to face death and eternity because he was covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. He was not afraid of death and dying because he was convinced he was saved. Are you convinced? Do you know for sure that if you died right now, you'd go to heaven? You know, that amazes me too. Sometimes Christians get upset by that. Someone asking them, how dare you ask me while I'm a member of such and such a church? I Honestly, I don't care if anyone in this church comes and asks me, Pastor, are you saved? Pastor, when did you get saved? Hey, I don't mind you asking me that. I'm glad to tell you the great story of how I came to Jesus Christ. And it's all about Jesus. But then one more thing about Paul here, he was not afraid of dying, was he was confident. Actually, there's two more things. I, I knew I'd have another one on there. But he's confident in his foundation. His life was no longer built on sinking sand. His hope and his life were now built on Jesus Christ. I remember uh, when I was a teenager, there was a, a favorite place I used to go fishing. And I love this. Uh, I caught some great fish there. I'll tell you about that later. But anyway, I was, um, and they, they were doing some dirt work there. And I remember they, they had dug a very deep hole. In fact, they were getting dirt for an interstate. And so it was a rather deep hole. And I was climbing along those uh, dirt cliffs, trying to get to a more strategic place to fish. And so I jumped from one level to the next, which maybe may have been five feet down, not a big deal. But when I hit that ground, I sunk all the way up past my knees in mud. And I don't believe it was quicksand, but it sure acted like it. I could not pull myself out. And I, and I felt myself even going deeper into that mud. And you know how it is, that mud just kind of latches on you and just sucks it in there. And, and so I'm trying to pull my leg out and and I had to literally, I had to lay down and try to roll and pull my legs. It took me quite a while, and I was covered with mud. But I'll tell you, what I thought was solid ground, I was confident. By the way, I never let go of my fishing pole. I held on to it. But I was confident that that ground was solid, that it was sure, and I, could, I would be able to jump on that and continue my, my progression along the, those uh, dirt cliffs. But it wasn't. And how many people? Think that, oh, I'm sure that my, uh, my uh, church membership is going to get me to heaven. But they're in a worse shape than I was, sinking in that mud. They're not on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. There is no other sure foundation. And Paul was confident in his foundation of Jesus Christ. And, and so he stood on the solid rock of Jesus. All other ground, Paul said, is sinking sand. And how true it is. If your life is built on Jesus, then there's no need to fear the storms. There's no need to fear the wind. There's no need to fear anything in this world. In 1 Peter 2, 6, we don't need to turn there because I'm just going to pull one phrase out of that verse. But it informs us there, whoever believes in Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, he shall be or shall not be confounded. In other words, he shall not be ashamed. He shall not be embarrassed. There is no need to fear if you're trusting Jesus Christ. One day when we die, 
or if the rapture was to occur, there's no need to be confounded. We can, we're not going to be embarrassed because we're trusting in Jesus Christ. So it's not a matter of dying and then standing before the Lord and Him figuring out based upon our good deeds and bad deeds where we go. No, the decision's made now. And so when we stand before the Lord as His child, we're not going to be ashamed as far as uh, our, uh, our knowing our destination and our relationship with Him. And so there's no need to fear if you're trusting Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1.12, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, Paul says, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. The believer may not know what. The believer may not know when or why, but we can know who. We can know uh, who we serve. Paul was certain of the person he was trusting, Jesus Christ. Paul's faith was, uh, was grasping hold of Jesus Christ, the one who abolished death, who had victory over the grave. Paul was on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. True confidence in Jesus, that is what gives us the armor we need. And not only against the ills of life, but also against the ills of death. Uh, if we have uh, confidence or trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus changes the whole aspect of how we view life and how we view death. Do you know the Lord Jesus today? A man who has great riches or something of great value, uh, they're afraid of losing that, uh, those riches or that valuable thing. And most often, they are doubtful that they have the power to keep that. And uh, uh, so they want to trust it in someone else's hands, a person that they can leave it with who will, uh, is reliable and who will protect it. That's why oftentimes we use banks and such like that. We have at least a degree of confidence that it will be backed up there. But who is more reliable? Who is more trustworthy than Jesus Christ? And Paul knew that. He could not put his soul in his own hands. He could not put his soul in the hands of the religious leaders of that day. He must trust Jesus Christ. And he was because he's tr totally trustworthy. So he's not afraid because he was covered by the blood. He was convinced he was saved. He was confident in his foundation. And another thing he was confident in was God's promises. Let me just share a couple of them. John 5, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. John 3, 36, he that believeth on the Son, again, it says, hath everlasting life. John 3, 16 mentions the same thing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then John 10, 28, Jesus said, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Is it not, I guess you could say, it is not presumptuous. Some people say, well, you can't say that you know for sure you're going to heaven. That's awful presumptuous on your, uh, your, your side. No, it's not. It's not presumptuous, Christian, for you and I to say, I know that I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. It is presumptuous for us to doubt what God has said in his word. To say, well, I, I, you know, I don't really believe what the Bible says there about eternal security. 
That is presumptuous. The Bible says that it is impossible for God to lie, Titus 1-2. Feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, naught else is worth believing. Though all my soul should feel condemned for want of some sweet token, there is one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. I'll stand on his unchanging word till soul and body sever. For though all things should pass away, his word will stand forever. Can you say assuredly with the Apostle Paul, I am ready to die. It would be well if you could say this. Why do I say that? Because we don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know how much time we have left. To him that is ready for it, the burden is light. We don't have to be afraid. Trust in the Lord today. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed.